Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone, and welcome into another edition of Catfish Corner. I'm John Garcia, joined, as always, by Tennessean National Predators beat reporter Adam Vingen and Tennessean sports columnist Joe Rexrode. Game 7 last night, Preds threw in a pretty dud of a game, losing 5-1 to one at home in their very first ever Game 7 at Bridgestone Arena. Jets move on to the conference final. Nashville has a very disappointing end to their spectacular season. What happened? Well... I think Joe would agree, and I think Peter Laviolette did as well last night when I asked him about it, that you know, the unpredictability of this series was its defining characteristic. Just when you thought you knew what was going to happen, or you thought you had an idea of where things were going, it went in a completely opposite direction. The Predators going to Winnipeg, down 3-2. You knew that they were going to have to give their best effort, but when you consider the situation, the Jets having just thrashed them, I say that, get that? Thrashed, yeah, I got it. Right? Oh, yeah. Ooh. The Jets thrashing them at home in Game 5, going home where the city was just electric in Winnipeg on Monday. You just thought that the Predators were going to you know, go quietly into that good night and then they had their best game of the season. I wasn't expecting that kind of game from them. And then because of what happened in Game 6, I thought they were going to come out with their best foot forward in Game 7, and they laid an egg. So every single time I personally thought I knew where this was going, it went the complete opposite way. And Peter Laviolette seemed to speak to that too. He said, I think on when Tuesday or Wednesday, that when he was talking about preparing for Game 7, that the games have been so all over the place that he had a hard time even attempting to guess what Game 7 was going to look like. But what we saw was what had what has plagued the Predators, or what plagued them now that we're talking about them in the past tense, what plagued the Predators throughout the entire postseason was their just inconsistency. And those mental lapses of, you know, defensive lapses, mental lapses, whatever you would like to call them, both maybe, you know, they every single time they had one of those against the Jets, it bit them in the butt. And we saw it again last night. Pecorita is going to take a lot of criticism, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, but the team in front of him failed him way too many times, and you saw that maybe less to less of an extent last night because the goals he gave up were cringeworthy, but for the most part, the defensive coverage in front of him made him look a lot worse than he actually was. Yeah, except, like, like you said, the game before when he has a 34-save shutout. I mean, it was a very bizarre series. My bottom line, one of my bottom lines coming out of it is the Jets were better. They were better. They won. They ended up really, if you look at the overall, I mean, 19-9, to they outscored the Predators in Nashville. They deserve to be moving on. I think they're the more complete team. And I know that's something that I think a lot of people in the Nashville dressing room would have a hard time coming to terms with, but I can't conclude anything else. And and we've been talking about Pecorini a lot. Of course he gets blamed 
you know, I, I think of game three, they lose seven to four, but it's boom, boom, boom. Um, obviously six, two in game five. In most of those situations, to me, it was not on him. But game seven, I, it was. You can't. I mean, Tyler Myers just sort of laying the puck up there on the goal line to you know get a rebound for Patrick Line, and you can't let that one in. I mean, it's 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 a, a fluky play, if you will. But in a game seven, that's crushing. And yeah. so I think for the first time, to me, you know, he deserved the blame that the goaltender gets regardless. Yeah. I was uh, listening to Sirius XM on my way into work today. We're recording this uh, early Friday morning. And uh, apparently Tyler Myers said that in the pregame scouting report on uh, CBC, TSN, whatever broadcast he was, that they were uh, talking about where they said, we feel like we can get pucks and shoot them at the goal line and score that way. And that was their scouting report. And it paid off because you saw the two goals that he let in. And Bufflin got the one that's similar in game two. Mm-hmm. That was he left in a couple soft goals in that game. They won that game. Mm-hmm. I think for the most part, he didn't let in a bunch of softies. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we've talked about it before. We talked about it in the Colorado series, um, and it's been opined over and over and over again on social media about how just the defense did not help him out. Yes, he let in some very bad goals, um, especially at the beginning of Game Seven. But the the defense wasn't there. I mean, Yossi and Ellis were essentially invisible for most of this playoff season. Uh, you're not going to win games when two of your best defensemen are just nowhere to be seen. Yeah, I wrote about that before Game 7, and I was hoping that that maybe they would prove me wrong, uh, and they didn't. You know, they finished the postseason with zero combined goals. You know, Yossi had his chances. I mean, before Game 7, he led NHL defensemen in the playoffs of both shots on goal and even strength scoring chances. So it wasn't as if, though, he wasn't attempting, but he just could not get the puck through. Ellis, to a lesser extent, had his opportunities, but still couldn't. I mean, P.K. Subban accounted for four of the six goals that the Predators defensemen scored in the playoffs. All four were on the power play, and all four were in the series against Winnipeg. That means that in the entire two rounds of the playoffs, the Predators defensemen scored two even-strength goals. Matthias Ekholm in Game 6 against Colorado and Yannick Weber in Game 5 against Winnipeg. To tie up to tie a up. game that would soon be untied. Yes, exactly. I look at this Jets team, and I see an incredibly deep team. We saw... Their big players rise to the occasion. Paul Stasny was fabulous. Mark Scheifele set an NHL record for the most goals on the road in a single playoff series. Blake Wheeler was outstanding. Dustin Bufflin was, I, may have been the best defenseman on either side. Kyle Connor had a breakout series. Patrick Laine did nothing, and they yeah, still rolled. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Patrick Laine was a non-factor mm-hmm. from a, from a on the score sheet, and they still beat the Predators. I mean, that speaks to how good this Jets team is, and they deserve to win. And that Western Conference Final is going to be a lot of fun um, against the Vegas Golden Knights, Um, even though I'm sure the scribes that will be covering it are upset now that they don't get to go between Nashville and Las Vegas. They have to go between Winnipeg and Las Vegas. Hey, King's Heads Pub, man. King Heads. Butter, chicken, poutine. Yes, there you go. Um, we spent many, I spent many a time in Winnipeg over the past couple of weeks. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the defense just wasn't there. I mean, as a team, the five-man unit that they always talk about wasn't there. Um, for the most part, they did have their moments, particularly in games four and six in Winnipeg. They played great defensively. Yeah. Um, but the defensive unit, I mean, 
that's the X factor. I mean, there's no defense in the NHL that is more offensively productive than the Nashville Predators defense, and they were a non-factor in that sense in the playoffs. And that's a huge, you know, that's a huge loss if you don't have that offense because all of their offense funnels from the back end. Either they're scoring from back there, or they're taking shots to create rebound opportunities that the that the forwards pounce on. It just wasn't there. Is it hesitations, or to get into the play? Do you feel like hesitation to be as aggressive as normal just because of who they were playing? I mean, I assume that's some of it. Well, Ryan Ellis said to me the other day that it's dangerous to get into a run and gun game with the Jets, and they don't want to do that. And I think that may have played something into it. Maybe they were less willing to do what they normally do in terms of jumping up in the play because they knew that if they screwed up, the Jets were easily going to take it the other way. I mean, I think what we saw in this series is that you do not want to get into a track meet with the Winnipeg Jets. The games where that happened, the Predators lost pretty handily. But when they turned that, as I, I think I said this after game four, when they turned the track meet into a tough mutter, when they, they made it a slow and grinding grinding and grimy game, the Predators were the better team. But they weren't able to do that enough. Which I thought was uh, what they did very well at the beginning of Game 5. They carried over a lot of their play from Game 4. And then all of a sudden, second period starts, they let Winnipeg start going around. They give them space, and then we saw how that ended up. But see, here's the thing. I, I still think that... Winnipeg did so much damage on the forecheck, getting pucks deep and then finding a way to keep it cycling and, and getting stuff against it. I didn't like to me, Colorado was a much bigger threat when that top line was on the ice in terms of speed and, and getting beat. Like that's not really Winnipeg's game. I mean, I mean, how many times did they have odd man rushes that, that result in anything in this series? To me, it was when they got the puck in the, the Predators you know, deep in their end, they, then they were they were creating chances off that. They were throwing fling pucks at the net and getting, you know, scoring that way. I didn't think that they were, I, I don't know, run, I guess run and gun mean, can mean different things. Right. I but, think the Jets are a, a, a better team off the rush than they maybe get credit for, but it wasn't as pronounced as Colorado. Like how many times did they score that way in this series? Not too many times. Mm-hmm. I would have to look deeper into it. But, you know, to your point, Joe, it seemed that every single time the Avalanche had control of the puck, particularly Nathan McKinnon and company, it was straight up the ice. You know, the, like you were afraid of that speed. Yeah, yeah. they the, the the Jets didn't do that the same way. The Jets are a better team at creating offense through their forecheck and cycling and creating turnovers. And the Predators making mistakes yeah. in their own end in the exactly. defensive zone. How many times do we see the Predators fail to clear a puck out? Think about the play that led to what was pretty much the dagger. Was was that wheel? It was Shifley's goal, the first goal. You know, Philip Forsberg couldn't control a puck out of you know trying to get it out of the defensive zone, and it ended up right on Blake Wheeler's tape and right to Mark Shifley. And UC Soros, let alone any goaltender, is going to have a very hard time stopping Mark Shifley winding up a one timer from the circle. Yeah, no, I, I took a look at that goal a lot last night, and no one was paying attention to him. Somehow Shifley found all of the ice over there, and everyone is watching Blake Wheeler skate into the zone. And Subban I, was the closest guy. Subban was the closest, and you know, since was he's he an incredible at, yeah, because he he dove at it, and you can maybe say, and again, because we know that these guys are incredible athletes, you may say that he had him in his peripheral vision or something like that. But as far as the camera angle goes for that, everyone, Johansson, Subban, everyone that was on the ice was focusing on Wheeler. No one saw Shifley get open, and then there was that one-timer 3-1. That's essentially all she wrote. It happened a lot. I mean, things like that happened a lot, which is weird to see. I mean, game five, 
There was the, I think the Bufflin goal and like every single predator was on one side of the ice. I mean, they got so, and again, you have to give the Jets a, a good chunk of the credit for that too. They got them out of sorts. They got them out of their game, discombobulated, disorganized, but it was just very strange to see that. From the Predators, you think about last year, how solid and sound they were game after game after game. And in this playoff, it was like, well, game four and six, they were sound, but they they could not find consistency yeah, at all. Even, even during the Colorado series, and we talked about this as well. I mean, game six was by far their best top to bottom effort. Every other game had something where you were like, OK, yeah, there's that president's trophy winning team and others where you're like, Oh, man, if you guys keep playing like that, that's going to come back to bite you. And that is exactly what happened. Yeah, and the thing is, and no question, I mean, I mean, we've talked about this, that they did not put two great games together in 13 games. However, you know, it, like if the Jets go on and win it, it will all still be, well, they took the Stanley Cup champion to seven games. You know? yeah, it's not I mean, they're still pretty good. <laughs> two games they won in a row, games one and two against Colorado. Not very good. No, they weren't great. No, they, they did not. They did not, as Joe said, they did not string together two President's Trophy-worthy performances in a row in the playoffs. And they did that plenty in the regular season. Again, a totally different game, but I don't know. Do you guys think that, like, the overall – I've been trying to think of big-picture reasons for this. Do you think that they struggled just to handle, you know, reading the press clipping, so to speak, or just – the expectations that they had that they knew surrounded them. I don't know. I, I, I Yeah, I don't know, especially because, like, you know, we talked a couple times towards the end of the season, especially, you know, when they were on that 15-game point streak where it's like, okay, they are playing really well, but there are some things that are creeping into their game that might that they're going to want to fix before the playoffs. And it, it seemed that, you know, they clinched the President's Trophy so late. There's, what, three two or three games left in the in the season. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Like because you figure that they were fighting, fighting, fighting all the way up to the end of the season, they should be ready to go. Um, but you know, as they've had been talking about since training camp, they wanted that home ice advantage and they got it. I don't know what happened That's after the most that. Confounding thing. Yeah. Is that September whatever, sixteenth, seventeenth, we're downstairs at Bridgestone Arena by the locker room. They're pulling players out to talk to us. This is the first chance we've had to talk to them in a formal setting since they lost the Stanley Cup final, and every single one of them went on the road, unprompted. Home ice advantage is incredibly important to us. That's what they all they said, because we saw how good they were in the playoffs last year, 9-2 at Bridgestone Arena. They, they, they felt that if they got home ice advantage, that they were going to be able to replicate that and go further. Three and four, yeah. they went. Three and four, and they lost three games at home to the Jets. I mean, the Jets are... I mean, the Jets are, are the best home team in the league. The Predators won twice up there. I mean, the last three teams to beat the Jets at home are the Predators, the Predators, and the Predators. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's you know, it was that kind of series which speaks to the unpredictability. But, man, three and four at Bridgestone Arena in the playoffs? And I think that flows into the original question of is it – I mean, Ryan Johansson said it the other day. Yeah. He's like, you know, the anthem singer and you want to go out and score a goal. I just, I but think, they should be used to that. Cause that's all that happened last year. No doubt. You know? like, but, but that, but last year they were the, nah, no one thinks you're going to win any of these series and you're just going to get beat by Chicago. And, and so they had that too. Yeah. And they certainly did not have that this time around. Peter Laviolette, you know, he'll use that stuff when he can use it. And when he has like the, the clear favorite president's trophy, then he's, you know, he's got to find other stuff. I just, I feel like there was an overall, and even in the building, like nervousness, tension when things were 
not going well. I mean, the fans were great. I mean, actually, game seven, I mean, the timeout standing ovation still sticking around. I mean, they gave them everything you could ask fans to give a team. But this also shows to me, guys, that hockey, I've always thought hockey, I mean, basketball to me is the most important home advantage. I, I, I think even just the officials are influenced by humans being that close to them and screaming in their ears. And then football, I think it's very important too. I think in hockey, I mean, look, it's, it, it can energize a team, but I think we've seen some of the limitations in this postseason too. I remember several years ago and I was still in Washington. I was, and they, one year they, they signed Wojtek Volski. People unfortunately remember him from having a very serious injury in a KHL game that he miraculously recovered from. And I remember him going on a rant, like just one day, at, like essentially saying home ice advantage, it doesn't exist. And it became sort of a running joke among my, my former colleagues, but it's sort of true. Like home ice advantage doesn't really mean much as much in the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, look at what the Predators did last year. I mean, winning game one on the road and they're each of their first three series. Um, you know, it, it but they happen. thought they were different. They went nine and two at home, and so they thought this place, yes. it, it, it actually is. Mm-hmm. And and that's what, to your point, Adam, that's why they were talking about it in the fall. And I get why they would say it and why they fought all year for it. just didn't work for them. No, and um, I, I, that's the one thing that I just have a hard time. I'm currently working on a story right now about just kind of trying to find the three reasons. If you can't find there's more than three, but yeah. I'm trying to boil it down, um, you know, the Home ice advantage was just non-existent, and that's pretty sad. So I want to transition a little bit to something we were talking – we started talking about before we we started recording, but kind of cut it short so that we could actually talk about it and get the good stuff on tape. You look at the trade that Poyle made halfway through the season for Kyle Turris uh, and how big of a deal it was at the time – considering you know Nick Benino was likely going to be their 2C for a little while and how much depth that gave them down the middle. And Kyle Turris doesn't do anything in the postseason, essentially. That's putting it nicely. And then, so, and then I guess you can look at that and look at what Kevin Sheveldayoff did in getting Paul Stastny. and Yeah, and, he, I mean, two Excellent. goals two goals in Game 7, great all through the series. I mean, Mr. Game 7. I know Justin Williams has that title, but, um, you know, I think he's a point-per-game player, Paul Stastny, in, in eight or something, something like that. I, I don't know what's going to happen from here, but I will not be surprised if in a few weeks we're talking about that is a Stanley Cup-winning move at the trade deadline. Paul Stastny, what an incredible addition. Oh, he yeah. fit, I mean, perfect for that team. Exactly what they needed, and it, it's made them, I think, the best team in hockey. It, it, it's, similar yeah. to what, it's similar to what the Predators did with Nick Bonino as John was referring to. I mean, Brian Lill, I believe, was their second-line center before that move was made. And Brian Lill is a good player, but he's not really a second-line center. Neither He's not Paul Stastny. Neither was Nick Bonino. And we saw how good Nick Bonino was in that third-line role. I mean, his line with Austin Watson and Colton Sissons, who, by the way, was also MIA in the second round of the playoffs, was the best line, arguably, in the first round of, uh, of uh, all yeah. teams, yeah. not just the Predators and the Avalanche. Like, you know, they had a five... They had, I think, before the... At the before the second round started, I looked it up. Unless it changed, they had a they were they were their goal differential even strength that line Benino's line in, in the Avalanche series was five nothing. That was the highest goal differential of any line in the NHL, and they did that against McKinnon too. Yeah. You know, and then they were gone too. But back to what I was saying, you know, you bump Nick Benino down, you get Kyle Turris. It had the same effect, and Kyle was great during the regular season. I mean, that line with Fiala and Smith was gangbusters immediately. They were a better line. Uh, in terms of goal differential in the play, in the regular season than Joe Hansen's line with Forsberg and Arvidsson. And then they went 
they I don't know what yeah he'd be on 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 that line. I mean they I looked it up this morning, you know, as a as a line when they were on the ice together, you know, Fiala Turs and Smith were on the ice together five on five during the regular season. The Predators outscored opponents thirty two to thirteen. When they were on the ice together and they were in the playoffs, they were outscored four to two. You know what's interesting yeah if Laviolette's breaking down the tape, and I have no idea what you do when their season ends. You probably don't, or you burn wait or everything for a couple. Uh, you, weeks. you may yeah. just burn it. But actually, I thought those guys were flashing in Game Seven. I thought Valtteri yeah, had his best chance of the season early. I think it was in the third period. Sometimes yeah. where he just like cut across the net and Hellebuck made a stop, and that was in the Predators' third period push. Even though you know, I think the shots were. 15 to three or something like that. Adam, you might have the numbers in front of you, but a lot of those shots weren't, I felt weren't that dangerous, but that one that Turris had was, and that line was buzzing. And, and Fiala has responded. I mean, without producing. Yeah. He, I mean, he was the best player on between Smith and Turris for sure. But again, he, that's with a healthy scratch and, yeah. you know, getting moved around the lineup a few times. Uh, so it, it's, it's just very odd to see that line that was so good during the regular season. And I saw some uh, commiserating last night as, you know, you try not to take in everything into effect because all the, the emotions are running high. But there were a, a lot of people who were lamenting the fact that Turris is signed for six more years. I, I, I don't think that you can say like, get oh, rid of everyone. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think you can say like, look at that, you know, look at that playoff performance and, you know, ship him out of town or no. something like that, because he is a very good player. We saw that during the regular season. And sometimes players have bad postseasons and they rebound next year. And that's going to be the storyline i think and for him all next year is you know sure you can do it in the regular season dude but you're well first do- let's see if that happens and i yeah. suspect it will yeah. but, but you're right no question when the postseason comes around next year it's like which cal Turris is it going to be but i yes it's it was a very disappointing postseason for him it's not enough to to abandon everything and everything he's done in his career he's been a good player I suspect he'll be a good player for the Predators for the next few years. Yeah. Got, got to do better in the postseason. You have yes. to. Yeah, he does. He absolutely does. And the thing is, we've seen him have, you know, success in the playoffs. I mean, he was a he's had great he had great success in the playoffs last year, even last year with the Ottawa Senators. I mean, he he has you know he scored a couple overtime game winning goals in the playoffs before. Um, but yeah, you know it's. Kyle is one of those players where, you know, there are players where they're multifaceted players. Like, think about Austin Watson, for example. Austin noted Watson, goal scorer? Noted goal scorer. <laughs> Austin Watson. Austin Watson has a great, you know, had a great season offensively. You know, amazing um, at short, you know, shorthanded goals. You know, but if he's not scoring, he's still affecting the game in other ways. He's killing penalties. He's blocking shots. He's playing shutdown defense. So if he's not scoring, you can say, okay, well, Austin is still doing, doing you know, good things. Kyle Turris isn't like that. Kyle Turris is a player where if he's not producing offensively, he's not really doing much of anything. So there isn't, a, there isn't really a fallback plan for Kyle Turris. Like, oh, I'm not, I'm not scoring? All right, I'll kill some penalties. You know, I'll take some important face-offs. You know, he's a very sheltered player in the sense that he always starts in the offensive zone. So if he's not... Doing things offensively, what is Kyle Turris really doing? And the answer is, is honestly nothing, and that's why it looks worse because they, you know, he's not affecting the game in other ways when he's not producing. Points. I 
I don't know what happened against Colorado, but to me, watching this series, I think a lot of this was he was just bullied. He was out physicaled consistently. And that's, again, that's why I look at the Jets and it's just an incredible mix of skill, speed, and also power. You know, I mean, and I just, I just, in this series, I feel like a lot of it was what they did to him. This is the longest period of time that I've watched the Jets like back to back to back to back other than, you know, watching them play the Predators and poking in, you know, on like Wednesday night games or something like that. I knew Nick Ehlers was a very good player. I did not realize just like how fast and how good he is. His zone, his zone entries in this series were incredible. He's an incredibly fast player. I mean, maybe the fastest player the Predators saw in the playoffs. Another guy that everybody was like, what's wrong with him, by the way, yeah. in this yeah. series, yeah. you know? He was, getting, he was getting the Kyle Turris treatment from the Winnipeg side. Mm. But, you know, when you watch, when you, when you have, when you watch a team for, you know, two weeks in a row, you know, you know, the, you know which players are good on each team, right? But you gain a greater appreciation. I mean, there are three players that I gained a greater appreciation for in this series. Mark Shifley, first yep. and foremost, yep. is just an incredible player. Blake Wheeler, all, I feel like, you know, if you're putting a list together of the perennial, like the most perennially underrated players in the NHL, he's got to be top five on that list. And and, and what? how short is the list of him as a passer in the NHL? Oh, it's, it's a short he's list. He's a great passer, too. And then... Um, um, Dustin Bufflin. I mean, I I knew Dustin, you know, is a great defenseman, you know, but you know there are questions sometimes about his commitment. There are questions about his commitment level as a and his focus. Best defenseman on the ice for both sides, I think. Just like the game people game three, he was just a monster, and he is a literal monster. He's a large man, <laughs> yeah. but he is also a monster. I mean. You know, I I grew up watching this. This can make me, this can make me sound so young. I grew oh, up, poor yeah. you. Quotation yeah. makers watching yeah. Dustin Bufflin because he played for the Norfolk Admirals when I was in, when I was younger, and I knew he was going to be good then. And you know, he's been great. Um, Did know, he used to pick uh, opponents up in each hand and no, just throw them around like ragdolls in oh the minors? That was incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was Darth just, Vader. It was yeah, as if though he was scolding Roman Yossi because he had him pulling pulling him by the ear like your mom, like pulling you by the ear. If he did something wrong, my mom never pulled my ears. But, you know, you see that on TV. Um, back, way back in your youth. Yeah, way back long ago. Yeah, five yeah. years ago. Yeah. I'm 30, okay? I'm relishing, I'm relishing the, the, the years that I have left as a millennial. Um, I think so, you're always going to be a millennial. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Someday you'll be an old millennial. Yes. And we'll think of and, and, and you, new ultra millennials will think of us as Gen Xers. Like, no, right, like me, yes. old people, yes. <laughs> You're not old. <laughs> so I do want to lay out a question that I think will be on a lot of people's minds throughout this offseason. UC Soros is an RFA. He played almost perfect hockey in the playoffs coming in in relief. It was the Mark Shifley goal is the very first goal that he let up in the postseason. Pecorina has one year left on his contract. Where do they go from here? Adam was pointing at me. I want to point at Adam. It's a great question. Um, but Pecker, I mean, it's amazing. You know, we're thinking of this postseason, and it's like, oh my gosh, Pecorina. And, and you talk about people wanting to give up on tourists. So, saw a few tweets to the effect of trade Pekka for a bag of pucks. Yeah. You know, like okay, yeah, and, and calm you met, yeah, down. Yeah, you mentioned it off the offset. He's going to get a lot of heat this yeah. this for a long time about this. He also is going to win the Vezina in a month, and he earned winning the Vezina. Absolutely, that is 100%. the best goaltender in the game. Uh, now, 
again, I'm not I'm not minimizing what happened in the postseason, although I will repeat that game seven in this series was the first time I said, oh, got to get him out. You know, that, that's just not okay. Not saying he was great. He could have been better. There were times he could have bailed his team out more than he did, but he just won the Vezina. On the flip side, he's going to be 36. Correct me if I'm wrong, Adam. 36 in November. 36 in November. You know, I mean, look, it, you go look through the history of goaltenders. There are some who can defy those, and he already really has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you think about the goaltenders who are... But the cliff can hit yeah. at, at some point. Longo, Henrik Lundqvist. Henrik Lundqvist. You know, maybe Marty Turco a couple yeah, years yeah. ago. It, it, it the, the Dominator yeah. went deep for yeah. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, but you from your Detroit, right? yeah, yeah, they went, went on to win the cup, by the way. Uh, but uh, no, I, to me, he has a year left on his deal and he's still up. I mean, he's the Vezina winning goaltender. I mean, certainly he's, I think, the starting goaltender next year. But I do wonder, is next year the transitional year? And is UC Sarge... As you said, John, you know, he was perfect for last night. You know, he's also coming in for a pulled goalie against teams that don't really care at that mm-hmm. point. Yep. But uh, I think he's very good. Is he good enough to at some point be a Stanley Cup winning goaltender? I don't know. What do you think, Adam? Well, the thing about UC Soros that a lot of people will ultimately look at whether or not he's going to be a long-term success is his size. Because goalies these days are large people like like Pecorino, like Connor Hellebuck. You know, they're they're both big guys. UC is not a big guy, um, so that's why someone. It may have been you, John, um, said you know, UC Soros is standing very very tall, and I was like, it's kind of funny because he's short. Yeah, and like, which is which is funny because when I was watching that game last night, I was like, man, I, you could tell that he was a smaller goaltender just by the people around him. Like yeah. he looked smaller in comparison and last he night. Makes up for his size with great explosiveness and an ability to read the play very quickly. Um, and he was great this season. I was very impressed the most by how good he was in the second half of back-to-backs. I mean, I think he had like an eight, I think like, I think cause the last back-to-back he would have played was in Tampa on Easter Sunday. And I think I had the stat that he was 8-0-2 in game in the second half of back And he was huge in that game. That was yeah. the game really that won the President's yeah, Trophy. They, he didn't lose a game of regulation in the second half of back-to-backs. I mean, no, no, I'm sorry, he did, but he went 8-0-2 in his last 10 starts of the season in the second half of back-to-backs. So, still pretty good. Still very good. I think next year needs to – I mean, it's going to still be Pekka's crease. I mean, the, the 50-50 timeshare thing never works. I mean, I know the most recent example is Dallas a few years ago with Antti Niemi and Kari Ledden, but they had to do that because both of them were pretty bad. Um, but the, the, you know, I I see Pekka maybe he had 59 starts this year, which was down, which is good. It's the first time he's under 60 starts in a full season in several years. Um, I would like, I personally would like to see him at 50 give UC 30 something, you know, I think that's what it should be. So it's just sort of a continuation of a transition of sorts. Continue to push in that direction, but don't go hard right away. Don't be like, we're going to UC starting opening night and, yeah, you know, no, yeah, of course not. Years, of course not. No. Oh. Yeah, and but there are going to be people who want that. Yeah. But yeah. you got to think. You got to think about it logically, and think about what you want. You being the listener versus what Peter Laviolette is going to do. And a lot of this, yeah, and to me, a lot of this is. I mean, I think Pecorine has done a lot of things to extend his career. He's talked about some of them, even changing how he works out, how he eats, all these things, trying to you know slow the clock like like people do. But I think he's also been very, very driven by the fact that he knows he can win a Stanley Cup, you know. So I 
I'd be surprised if the answer wasn't a resounding yes, but there is a question like, are you still all in on this? I mean, can you come after this disappointment and then after last year going all the way into June and have another summer like that and be ready to go through the grind? I mean, again, I don't have any doubt that he's going to say yes and that he would put in the work, but you get to this point in your career and I'm sure it is challenging and I'm sure it is tough to you know, go through this grind and then perform like this or see what has happened here and come up this short. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting situation in his career right now. Yeah, and I think that if anyone has deserved the benefit of the doubt of the organization, whatever you want to say, it's Pecorine. There should be no question that he comes back next year, that he is in the starter's crease next year and tries to shake it off and, and, and go at it again, especially because, you know, looking at their roster, a lot of things are going to be very similar about this roster as it was this past season, which bodes well for them. Maybe they don't win the president's trophy again, but, you know, maybe they, they learn and, you know, move on and get back to the conference final. I mean, it, it's hard to go to a Stanley Cup final one year and then try and get back there again. It, it's just it's hard to get there in general, let alone two years in a row. So, I mean, it is a disappointment. Uh, and not where the Predators organization wants to be, ousted in the second round. But, man, if Predators scored like three or four more goals in Game 7, maybe maybe we're putting a little bit more of the onus on Rene because, yeah, those two goals that he led in were really bad. But when you score one goal at home in a Game 7, you can't really blame all that on the goaltender. No, here, here's an here's a impassioned rant for a minute. Oh, here we go. I do like to rant. I... I actually find it rather, I don't like, I'm about to say sickening, but it's not, that's too strong. But it's amazing to me how Predators fans, a certain section of the Predators fan base, and if you're listening, you know who you are because I see all the things that you write, you know. I'm on on social media, okay? Adam's watching you. Big Brother's watching you. There is a certain section of the Predators fan base that absolutely, you know, vilifies Pecorine when he doesn't play well. And think about what he has meant to this organization. Think about how great he was this season, this regular season. Think about how great he was in the playoffs last year, essentially outside of the city of Pittsburgh. He was fabulous. And anytime he slips up, it's, oh, he's old, he's got to go. You know, he can't win the big one, he chokes, blah, 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 blah. I know he hasn't won any Stanley Cups for this organization yet. And if his career ends without one, you can, we're going to talk about Pecorino, in my personal opinion, and you can, you know, you both can agree or disagree. Pecorino, at this very moment, in my opinion, is the greatest player in Predators history. I don't. Is there is there any question about that? I I don't have one. So you will remember him as thus, but there's going to be like a yeah, but did he win us a Stanley Cup? If you're a Predators fan, um, he may not. But it's just amazing to me just how Predators fans will just be willing to, you know, park him underneath the 16-wheeler and back it up over him when he doesn't do well. I mean, I know that's the nature of the position. It's the same thing with a quarterback. It's the same thing with a starting pitcher. But it's 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 amazing to me, and I very much disagree with it. I mean, he did not have to talk last night. No. He had every opportunity. If he, didn't, if he wanted to sulk into the back and, and never talk to us for the rest of the year, he had every right to do that. But he stood up. He took blame. He, he said that he felt very much responsible for what happened. And could you give that to him? Maybe. But he definitely does not deserve full blame. But the fact that he stood up and owned it, 
you know, I, I have absolute utmost respect for Pecorino. I always have. Mm. That, that if there was any way it could grow, it did last <laughs> No, I mean, honestly, and for people who, yeah, for people who don't know, it's not a surprise to us because, I mean, really, I've been covering sports for, you know, 20, I don't know, I don't want to get into it. We've already <laughs> talked about my a age. A few years. Yeah, a couple of years. Uh, he's he's probably as classy a guy as I've encountered and accountable a guy because really, I, like you said, I, a lot of people would not have talked last night in that same situation um, and would not have said the things he said. And I think he was a little too hard on himself. It wasn't a big surprise to me, but I agree, Adam. It, it was it, it, my respect grew even more for him. And you know, the fans you're talking about. One thing I I struggle with at times this job is. You know, you cannot judge a quote unquote fan base by like three people tweeting. You know, I mean, sometimes Twitter gets a little twisted. And and I think also, I mean, frankly, there are some people who go nuts about Peg. And I think sometimes it's just maybe not knowing the game that well because it's like, hey, they got a goal. So it's on the goaltender. But it's like, well, you have to look at what happened that led to the goal that none of these guys are are superheroes. I mean, if you leave them out to dry, they'll all give up goals. So, you know, there's some of that too. I agree. It's, it's always an emotional loss like this. You're going to have, you know, booze, Twitter and ignorance, you know, mixing in a bad way. But I feel like most of the Predators fan base has the proper appreciation for him. I, you know, that, that's just, that's my guess. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, and some of the more reasonable takes I saw last night were like, I love Pekka, but, and you know, that type of thing where I think people are starting to come around and see that kind of light at the end of the tunnel, just because, you know, he's in his last year of his contract next year. Is he going to come back? We don't know after that. I mean, we, we don't know. He, he, I, I could see him retiring a predator uh, or I could see him, you know, after this is all done, say like, Hey, Pekka, it's, it's been great. But we're we're ready to move on. I, we we just we don't know where. Could, yeah, could they do? Do you think they might do a you know like a two year deal on top of this, something like that? I think he I, I one year deal. I don't think he's going to. I, I just just based on what you talked about, Joe. How mm-hmm. we go constantly. He's in great shape. He's constantly adapting and adjusting his game. I don't think he's going to retire at the end of his contract. I mean, I, I, I don't think so either. No one year deal and like similar to like. You know, similar to what Mike, the contract that Mike Fisher had before he retired and then came out of retirement, you know, it was like just a two-year deal. You know, I would not be surprised to see that if that were to be the case. And you know, to your point, Adam, you talk about people saying, "Well, but but he didn't win a Stanley Cup." Well, how many how many years has he been in net for a team that really had a, a legitimate chance Under to do one, so? Maybe two, if yeah. you count last year. Like he 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 kind of if, if I if I recall correctly, he sort of had his coming out party around 2011 with the Vancouver series. If I if yeah, I'm like right? I, I remember uh, hearing his name a lot about 0910 and then. Vancouver series with like the Anaheim series, um, then Vancouver and then there. And then that's when, you know, he got the Vesna nominations and stuff like that. And then, then the hip injury and the, you know, the hip infection. And, and they had you some think, not very good teams. Yeah. And they had, there, there was that. And then, you know, the very end of the Barry Trotz era, which coincided with, you know, Pecorino's injury was just not a good spot for the predators. And, you know, they have been on the upswing since Peter Lavulette came up and, you know, he has been there for all slash most of that. And you think about what he came back through with that injury that he was at. And it's just like, I, you know, I 
like Pecorino a lot. I wouldn't go as far to say he's like one of the best goaltenders of all time or he's the best goaltender in the league. I think he's like right there on the cusp where you have like the elite people like uh, uh, Carey Price and Henrik Lundqvist and uh, those guys up there. And then he's like right that that second tier. He's right there. But he definitely played out of his mind this season and was one of the best goaltenders in the league and is going to win the Vesna Trophy as the best goaltender in the league. And that's incredible to do at his age with everything that he's been through. So I think he still has a lot to give. Uh, I think that he should still be the starting goaltender next year, if not for as many games as he played this year and the year before that. I agree. I, I do think he should be the starting goaltender last year. I don't think even next year. I don't even think that should be a question, personally. Yeah, it's just it's going to be very interesting to see how you know the contract situation, and all that is, and and, and I, I imagine there is more, a little bit more transition to Soros, and then you know maybe less reluctance to switch in the postseason next year. I mean, Peter Laviolette, as we as we've seen, doesn't have a problem pulling him, but even you know, I, I always wonder with. And we've seen a lot of teams, and we've seen teams win it with two different goaltenders playing key roles in a particular postseason. Think about what we saw here three years ago. Scott Darling coming in for Corey Crawford, you know, saving his bacon, and then going back to Corey Crawford, who won the series, and then continued to play really well. I mean, it happens. Teams do it. I mean, Scott Darling was the, the, the... deciding factor of that playoff series against the Predators three years ago, which is hard to believe I'm saying it was three <laughs> years ago. Yeah. But that if he was, I mean, Crawford was terrible. Darling came in, was fabulous, and then, you know, seeded the crease eventually to Corey Crawford, who took it and ran, and they won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, and, and, you know, Grubauer starts Grubauer, the Capitals yeah. this year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Penguins have have loved having two really good goaltenders and now only have one, and the other one is, you know, he's doing in the conference exactly, final. Yeah, he's the best goaltender in the, in the playoffs right now. Yeah. Uh, and Marc-Andre Fleury. I was about to say, that would be a really great Stanley Cup final, and then I forgot the Penguins got eliminated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It, it's weird, <laughs> right? It, it's weird, right? Um, so the Predators don't really have that many major decisions to make um, in terms of contracts. You know, two years ago they had to sign Philip Forsberg. Three years last summer it was Ryan Johansson and Victor Robinson. You know, this year they don't really have that. Just you know, the biggest decision is UC Zaros, who's a restricted free agent with no arbitration rights. So they sort of control the Predators. Do what what takes place. Um, you know, Ryan Hartman is an RFA as well, and that'll be an interesting negotiation because the Predators gave up a lot to get him. Yes, they but, did. But he did not perform to his capabilities. No, he didn't. So Threw a couple of tantrums and got some healthy scratch a couple yes. times. So you wonder what you go if you go a bridge-like contract with him, a, a show-me contract, here's a two-year deal, prove me, prove, you know, David Poyle saying, prove to me that you're worth the long-term investment with this contract. Um, Mike Fisher, we know, who did not play last night, um, is going to go back into retirement. And that's another question that I will be writing on at some point. Was it worth it for Mike Fisher to come out of retirement considering everything? And we haven't even really talked about no. him so far on this no, podcast. Scott Hartnell is an unrestricted free agent. I would not be surprised personally if he retired himself. A great career for Scott. Um, but, you know, getting old. So we'll see what happens. But if you're him, though, you're also on a team that is so close. I mean, do you you know try to stick around for another year if you can find a way you know something that works for both sides i don't know yeah i mean he was on a one million dollar contract which was supplemented by his buyout from columbus but i wouldn't be i mean if you do the same thing i mean he's a very he's a he still can play the game you know he's not 
doesn't look like he's dragging out there. He was a huge factor in those games in Winnipeg. Kyle Connor would agree he's not dragging out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you look out. You look at what else they have to do. Uh, Mika Salamaki is RFA. Your boy Joe Mika Salamaki is a. Hey, he played his role. He played his role. Uh, Alexi Emelin is an unrestricted free agent. I can't imagine them keeping him around. Um, you know. Did, did his job for the most part, but, you know, he just doesn't fit in with this group. Like, in terms of his style of play to how the Predators want to play defense, doesn't fit. You wonder if, you know, they have a lot of, they have some good defensive prospects down on the farm. You know, Alex Carrier, Carrier, I always forget which way to say it. Um, <laughs> you know, Dante Fabro. Is Dante Fabro ready for prime time? Um, and don't forget about Tony Patel. Who was solid in his own right. He was good when he played this yeah. year. And Ellie Tolvanen, of course, next yes, year is, is going to have a, uh, I would imagine, a pretty significant role somewhere. So. so I'm not playing a single game in the playoffs, only three games during the regular season. Um, that was to be expected, though. We didn't expect him to come in, you know, play game, you know, play, uh, you know, a huge role. In Especially against the Jets. Yeah, I thought if they, I thought if they went, you know, three, four rounds at some point, because of injuries at least, that at some point we'd see him, but... I guess the injuries were starting to mount a bit. Yeah. All that said, the Predators could very well be back in this position next year, although with the chance to maybe move on. And that was the beauty of some of the moves that David Poyle made and some of the signings that he made, whereas this team is going to be good and competitive for a few more years now. After that, who knows? This isn't the end of the road, I don't think. And I think that next year will be just as uh, important of a season for them. And now they will have uh, maybe a little bit of a chip on their shoulder and maybe uh, be, okay, we've got to buckle down and do the thing that we wanted to do last year. Well, I'm going to look. I'm just pulling up capfriendly.com to just get a sense of where everybody is. So, I mean, Ryan Johansson just was the first year of an eight-year contract. Now, Philip Forsberg's got four years left on the contract he signed two years ago. Craig Smith has two years left. Victor Arvidsson has six years left. Nick Benino has three years left. Kyle Turris has six years left. Kelly Yarncroke has five, uh, four years left. Um, you know, P.K. Subban has five, uh, excuse me, four. Roman Yossi has two. Matthias Ekholm has four. Ryan Ellis has one. Yeah, that's a big one next year. You know, Pecorine has one. Ryan Ellis is eligible to sign a contract extension starting July 1st. Um, as is Pecorine. Um, so I look at, you know, this this team's window is large. We, like, as long as goaltender is good. Yes. Right? And that's, but, like, the way I thought about entering the season is that sort of like to go back to the Capitals for, again for a second. You know, Brian McClellan, their general manager, said a couple of years ago, like, we have a two-year window with the group that we have, the team with Justin Williams and Marcus Johansson, Kevin Shattenkirk. Kevin Shattenkirk, and they failed. Mm-hmm. But now look at them, right? Um, but anyway... I saw this as a win with this group right now that you saw on the ice. They have one year left as this group to win the Stanley Cup because if they don't, you don't know what happens with Ryan Ellis. You don't know if Pecorine is going to be the starter the year after this if he, or, what, or what's going to happen. Next year is the last year that this team has as this group to win the Stanley Cup. So we'll see if they can do it. And it's, you know, most teams would... Most franchises would love to have this particular team and one year to go win it. But again, to your to the larger point, the overall window, yeah, it's it's going to be open for them to be 
a playoff team that can make a run for a few years here with this core group to me. Yeah. And I'm sure that they will run into the Jets plenty of times in those coming years because that is another team that looks like they're going to be they're going to be good for a while. Yes. So, gentlemen, anything else as uh, as we wrap up? Uh, I think uh, you guys will have locker room breakdown day coming up here relatively soon. Saturday is uh, the players will will depart on Saturday. Tomorrow we're recording this on Friday. David Poyle and Peter Laviolette are scheduled to speak on Monday. And then that's it. Cool. So we will probably have one more podcast episode to sit down, get your guys' thoughts on what everyone said, and then we'll probably take a break for a little bit as the offseason goes, maybe poke in here and there for, you know, free draft, agency. free agency, maybe do an all-in-one type of thing because the hockey offseason can be long sometimes. Yes, Indeed. I mean, the Predators have more than four months now until their next game when they start their preseason. So we got, you know... Last year, the offseason was broken up because it went long, and they immediately went into the expansion draft, and they immediately went into the amateur draft, and they immediately went into free agency. It kind of flowed. Like, the season really didn't end for them until, like, July 2nd. But now it's May 11th as we record this. They have a lot of time on their hands. Extra month of yeah. rest. And maybe that bodes well for them for next year. It's, it's, it's hard to go to a Stanley Cup final and then go the distance in two rounds and almost make it to a third. Thank you guys very much. Uh, you can follow Adam Vingan at Adam Vingan on Twitter. Joe Rexroad, you can follow him at Joe Rexroad. Me, I'm Jay Garcia, 36, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>